Good afternoon everyone and welcome along to another of Shared Ireland podcast. Today we'll be having a conversation with a gentleman who will need very little introduction. He's a political commentator, journalist and author. I'm delighted to welcome along Alex Cain. Welcome Alex. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. Glad you could find time in this busy week coming up to the elections to fit us in. <laughs> Goes with the territory. Alex, you're a proud unionist. Can you tell us a little bit about your early years and upbringing, please? Well, um, I, I was adopted. I was adopted when I was six, and I, sometimes people say jokingly, you know, well, because I don't know very much about my background. They say, well, you could, yes, you, you could have been one of us, Alex. That was maybe a silly question I asked you in, in hindsight. No, you, 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 you could, you could have been a little unionist. You could have been a little nationalist, sort of. Because I don't know, and I, I was adopted in 1961, and the records didn't go with you in those days. It's right. not like it is now. So, yes. and I, I could search if I wanted to, but you know, I had, a, I had a happy, I had a happy adoption, and. I've never gone down that territory, but when I was adopted, I was adopted by um, two wonderful parents, um, Sam and Adelaide. And my father, uh, adopted father, my real father as I see him, um, was a clerk of the Kirk in the mm-hmm. local Presbyterian church. Mm-hmm. He was an office holder in the Armagh uh, Ulster Unions Association. Uh, at that stage, we only, there only were 12, so it was a big association. Mm-hmm. And he was also uh, an office holder in the County Armagh Orange Lodge. Did, did I hear something online, sorry for interrupting you, that did your father save John Taylor from drowning or something like that? No? Yes, he, 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 he did. <laughs> um, I'll come back. Okay. Let me, let me return to that. Yeah. Just saying in terms of, of my the background through the adoption, it was... Um, uh, he was a, a player and a, a, an office holder in the three pillars of, of unionism, the Presbyterian Church, the Orange Order, the Ulster Unionist Party. Okay. He was a key player in all of that. So my background from then oh, was a unionist yes, yes, background. I see. And in fairness to him, not a hardline uh, unionist, not not someone who, in fact, uh, when, I, when I was 14 and the first, I mean, somebody once mentioned about joining the Orange Order, he was the one that said to me, you know, Although it probably embarrassed him having to tell his colleagues, he was the one who said, don't join unless you're comfortable. Don't join if you have questions in the back of your yes. head. And, um, so he didn't push nothing on you? No, he didn't. But his view was you find your own identity, you find your own role. Good. I you, think that's very good advice. You find, you find your own voice. Don't join okay. something just because others do. Don't, he was not a believer in the herd instinct and um, I think that that stood in good stead and I remember when I when I first Just joined, out of curiosity did you ever join no I didn't well I, I, I didn't join because I'm an atheist to the first and <laughs> right. foremost okay. and um, right. and although I do remember a very long time ago and I um, a senior orange man said to me you know if you're if you're interested in a, a political career Alex it might help to join the orange I see. and I said well you know I've no huge objection in one sense but I am an atheist and it's a religious organisation and he just said, well just don't tell anybody. <laughs> so I, I, I think it wasn't, while it, well, it was considered that you, you needed to be a Protestant or a Protestant background, yeah, yeah. I think there's a sense that a lot of people who joined weren't necessarily either evangelical or even norm, nominal, much more than nominal churchgoers yeah. and so on. And indeed when I, when I first decided, I, I got it, I was obviously interested in politics because of what my dad did and the background I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I joined the Ulster Unionist Party, it was because I believed in power sharing. Yes. And this was 1972, mm-hmm. at a time when the SDLP was regarded as basically a front for the IRA. It was much greener, or seen as much greener than it would have been years later. The, so the SDLP? The SDLP within unionism. People forget about this. You know, the, 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 the power oh, sharing. Hold on, are you saying that the, within unionism, 
the thinking was that the SDLP was a front for the IRA. Well, there was uh, there were elements of unionism who thought that basically, if you look at the well, look at the, the view of the, the Civil Rights Association, look at the view of any for this was new nationalism. Basically, the and you, there is a, a part of the unionist psyche, not all of them, but there's a part of the unionist psyche which is anything that looks like organised nationalism must, by definition, have some sort of link. To, to, to I, find, I find that very interesting. No, yeah. I, I don't. I, 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 well, I don't think it's particularly interesting. I just, it just seemed to me to be. I, I, I've heard it said before and since then. Yeah. And the very fact when Brian Faulkner it, um, did his deal, the Sunday Day deal with uh, and involved the SDLP, some of the criticism was that he, it just, this was a nationalist All Ireland United Ireland Party, you know, and they were doing exactly the same thing in a different way, maybe from <laughs> from Sinn Fein and the IRA, but it was all to the towards the same end. And, and I remember just on the when, when I said I was joining, members of my family were very disappointed when I said that I supported power sharing. Mm-hmm. Because it was, well, well, why would you do that? They, they, they want to take our land, they want to do this. And right. my yes. view, and I would have been 18, 19 then, my view, and it's always been my view, if you want Northern Ireland to work, yes. it must work together. You must make Northern Ireland a comfortable place. Even people who want the aspiration, to hold on to the aspiration of a united Ireland, I have no difficulty with that. People who want to use a mandate to push for that, I have no difficulty with that either. So I just, my view has always been, if people want to push that, that's their entitlement. Mm-hmm. But also, it's up to unionists to say, this is not a bad place. Show we, us we, an alternative. Yeah, you know, yeah. and I, so all, all of that was in my plane. Certainly. You know, But it, it, it's important to remember, that, you know, when we look back now, we're... You know, power sharing with, with, with Sinn Féin still causes problems, but back then, and this would have been 1971, 72, for someone coming from my background, as, and as a, an 18-year-old, to say, well, actually, I have no particular objection to, the, uh, to a, a, a power sharing government in which yeah. unionists, even though unionists may have an overall majority in yeah. terms of a headcount, yeah. I have no personal, moral, political objection to us sharing power, to say to people, let's make this place work, let's make you comfortable. Your thinking was possibly a little bit ahead of its time. I don't know if it was ahead of its time. When you're 17, 18 years old and you're looking around... I think that's very mature for a 17, 18 year old to be thinking along the Well, I was doing... A, I don't know whether it was... I was doing A-level politics. Mm. I was doing history. I read a lot. You know, yeah. and, and I was encouraged. My, my dad encouraged me to read. Yeah. My mum encouraged me to read. And as I said earlier, his view is: don't just follow the head. Yeah. Go with your own conscience. Go with what you believe to be right. Yeah. And I remember him saying: you will have difficulty. There will be people who will say you're some sort of traitor. You're letting the side down. Yeah. Not just in politics, but yeah. life That's in right. general. But he said: if you've reached a decision, be prepared to stand over it. And one thing, one thing I've always said. Um, in everything I've done in my writing and my talking, I like audiences usually think, you know, oh, okay, maybe he's crazy, <laughs> maybe he's this, maybe he's that. Nearly everyone I've ever met, even when they've said, I don't agree with you, they've gone, you've thought about it, and it's clear you believe in it. And I think that's important. I think yeah, people will respect you, is my view. They don't have to agree with you, but they will respect if they think you've thought it through. So I, I don't think it was brave in that sense. It was just my belief. I wanted Northern Ireland to work. I, you know, and I, if you want anything to work, it has to be by cooperation. You cannot tell people how to feel, how to believe, how to vote, how to think. Mm-hmm. So I thought, to me, it seemed logical. You say, let's make this comfortable for everybody. Mm-hmm. And I've never shifted from that belief. Yeah. Just getting back to your father, saving John Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's actually, I, I didn't really know the story until I, I'd, I'd mentioned it. I'd, I'd sort of tweeted a Father's Day thing, I think it was a couple of years ago, and John had seen it, and John right. said, sent me a little message to say, 
by the way, I don't know if you know if Sam had told you, because he was a modest man, you know, he wouldn't have made an issue. And I said, yeah. somewhere in the background, I remember some story about you, but I didn't realise it was about drowning. Yes. Yeah. And he said it was Rosnola Bay, I think, oh, or Harbour. And he said, no, your dad, we were down there, and uh, my, my dad was very friendly with his his dad, and uh-huh. so on, and he said he... I, I was going down and um, he came in, waited in, saved me, drive, saved him from drowning. And I said to John, because I think he was coming up to his 80th birthday, oh, and I yes. was, I'd been asked to write a piece about him. And uh-huh. I said, John, do you mind uh-huh. if I if I mention that? And this, uh, the number of people <laughs> forgot everything else in, in that profile of him, but said, <laughs> so it's your fault, Alex, it's your dad, your dad. But, but yeah, but it's just the fact that John, I think, just remembered that, rem- remembered him with great kindness. Yeah. And, um, and it's little. And he said, I wasn't surprised by that with my dad doing that because that's the sort of thing he would have done. And I'm not, nor was I surprised that he didn't bother yeah. <laughs> ever thinking that it was yeah. worth mentioning. Yeah. You know, yeah. even though we we knew John quite well and yeah. I would have seen John, he never thought of saying to me, yeah. you know, oh by the way, you know, John's alive and yeah, kicking because, because I, if something like that happened, that would probably be in the front page. Of oh, that's right. It would, be, it would be. They would be. They would take the they would take the, the pictures of him drowning and then something <laughs> weird. That's how you do it nowadays. That's how that's how media works Isn't nowadays. It's ridiculous. Yeah. If something tragic is happening, the first thing people think to do is reach for the record button on their phone instead of going and maybe helping. Well, I think that's true, but just that's what my dad would have done. Even yeah. even now in this age, that's yeah. what he would have done because that was the kind of guy he was. Very good. So. Alex, just before we get into, I suppose, what we're here today to talk about, you once wrote an article about changing your life before you met Kerry, uh, your current wife. I believe. No, she's my partner. Or your partner. Don't apologies. say my current. It always sounds like there may be another one floating down the side. And if she hears this, she go, oh, it's like Terry, Terry Wogan always talked about the present Mrs. Wogan. So no, no, Terry is not current. Terry is my is your yes, partner yes. And, and will be the only one, correct. Um, but, but you spoke about the feeling of being lonely. Would you mind telling us a little bit about that time in your life and... Because I find that very interesting about, you know, you're happy reading books and your small circle of friends. See, you did do re- research. <laughs> yes. and, and then you met Kerry um, unexpectedly, I think. Mm-hmm. And here we are many years later and you have a child and all together. And, uh, you know, could you tell us a little bit more about that, if you don't mind? No, the, the odd thing about loneliness is you don't really know you're lonely until you found something that stops you being lonely. Um, you found happiness. So um, there hadn't been really anyone particularly important in my life. I'd had girlfriends and things like that, short-term relationships and so on. But there'd never been the one. I know that sounds... It's how like do, a, how do you know the yes, one? a rom-com is about to come up. Um, but there'd never, yes. been that, there'd never been that sense of someone I thought just... I want to spend the rest of my life. This person interests me, this person. I feel better when this person's around. They make me laugh, you know. I, I want to share my burden. I trust them enough to, you know, to tell them. So used to be, I think it was Mark Twain said, you know, that um, uh, a friend is someone who knows everything there is to know about you and still likes you. And I think, um, and someone you find, you know, love with, it's, it's, it's a very special, very particular thing. And I say, but I got used to the fact that, you know, I had, I was reading, I was working, I had my circle of friends, I had my house, I, you know, um, I, I, I wasn't afraid of, you know, solitary dinners. Yeah. I got sick to death of being set up by my friends with the most <laughs> unlikely, you know, you said, well, do these people know me? When they, yeah, yeah. You know, they, they're, they're trying to set me up with these people. There's always that hint of desperation that yeah. these people are just, will they suit, will they work? All of that, you know, yeah. and then um, 
up in the assembly, I was working in the assembly, and uh, Kerry came up to work there, and we met. And something you know, you just click with someone, and yes. not in the in the boy girl thing, just someone you liked. We As got, another human being. Yes, another. Yeah. We just we just got on enormously well with each other. Um, we laughed at the same things. Um, she was twenty years younger than me, you know. So even thinking about that was a sense of you know, is it, is it crazy? Is it? Remind me of what age were you when you met, and what age was Kerry then? Um, I was. I was, she was twenty one, twenty two, and I was forty something. Right. Okay. You know. So, um, but that's the other thing. You, in essence, you don't actually think about it in those no. terms. I just thought there's someone I like, and the, the the extraordinary thing about this was actually someone in MLA who said to me, "We're just sitting chatting about someone, something else," and he said. When are you going to ask her? And I said, ask uh-huh. her. And he said, it's clear. It is quite clear that the, you two just like each other. And yeah. I, I, I thought long and hard, you know, is it crazy? You know, and it's you, a sleepless night before you plucked up yeah, the courage. Yeah, and I just thought, no, we'll see, we'll see what happens. And I just asked and I said, that's getting on for 20 years. Um, we have three children now. We, uh, we are blissful. You know, and it, it seems a strange thing to say, but... There came a moment, I think, within months of of, of of being together, that I suddenly realised just how dreadfully alone I had been beforehand. That all the rest, all that, the books and you know the house and the tidy home and you know not having to clean up after kids, that was just an illusion. That was just I was I was I was basically filling time. It's only when you have a person and you find yourself thinking, you know, where are they? What are they doing? Oh. I was, and you can't wait to tell them something. And yeah. that is, I think, the most extraordinarily powerful thing that happened in my life. And it changed me. I was saved. My mum, my Adelaide, saved me in, in, in the most literal sense of that term. And Kerry came along and saved me from another. I wasn't, I wasn't miserable. I wasn't unhappy in that sense. But my life, it's only when I had that moment I realised just how empty that life had been. And, I, you know, you get to a certain age, and I was then in my early 40s, when you think you're never going to, it's it's too late, it's past. And I always say to people, I'm not a romantic. I'm actually not particularly emotional, but I, I have some friends who say, you know, oh, Alex, and I said, it'll just you just don't know. Uh-huh. But the only advice I always give to people is, don't be afraid. You might get knocked back, but sometimes you have to think. No matter what it looks like, you sometimes say, if this is the person you think that is going to matter to you in your life, you have to tell them. You can't, it, it doesn't work by guessing. It isn't, it isn't some sort of medium or anything like that. You have to be up front. The old is, this isn't a rehearsal. That's right. And you know, it is, whatever it is, it has worked brilliantly. And the number of people have said to me, you know, you just have to see you two. You just, you're in your own world. Yeah. You're happy in that world. I suppose people may wonder why I even brought this question up. But it was when I was doing a little bit of research on you, and I, I just there's something about that article that you did that resonated with me. That little bit when you said of feeling lonely mm-hmm. before you met Kerry, and I suppose that's the only reason why I thought I would ask you about no, it because uh, for me, I, I don't know. I don't mean this in the way it's going to sound, but I nearly felt sorry for you <laughs> the way that you wrote it. You know. Yeah, but no, it it it, it was that sense of just um of. of I said, I, you don't fully understand the scale of, of your own insularity until there's, some, there's someone, I now know what I would miss. I mean, I, it's, a, it's a ridiculous thing to say, but I just thought, you know, if I drop dead when I'm 44, 45, you know, nobody will really care because they won't notice. It'll be, I'll, be, I'll be rotting in the house and somebody goes, anyone seen Alex? 
but not and he's like if it happens it happens but now you know there's a little moment you think you know with the, with the children with Kerry I just know you know I would I'm one of those people who would now fight to the very last breath you know just to, to, to just if, to talk to her to talk to yeah. the kids to, to just have them beside me and I think you know it's one of the it's people say what what was the great life motivation it's it's having people you love Very it's true. having people who you care for and who you know care for you that's so and particularly i think it's also because i was adopted i mean I, I i went to an orphanage when i was four i wasn't adopted till i was six i wasn't speaking till i was almost eight and so on right? yeah so this sudden real and it's because I'm i had sure no confidence that, that's right that's <laughs> why i am but i had no confidence i had no security i, I felt unloved i felt unwanted and again, suddenly to find all this, and you think, I have missed so much. You see, when you put it all in that context, that's very true. Very, very true. I can't understand what you're thinking, but I, you've given me, and hopefully our listeners, a little bit of more of an insight into your thinking. At well, least. I think that, I mean, your relationships with people are what shape you, whether it's in politics, whether it's just your ordinary life, whether it's family life, whether it's your colleagues, all of these things shape you. And I say, the one thing missing. From for that long period of my life, was that that person I wanted to come home to? That person I was sitting in a meeting for years. I sat at meetings and people were like, oh, "Sure, we can run this for another half hour." And then I suddenly realised, "I got this just going. Let's end it now. We'll deal with that some other time. Just put that, sign that off. Let's go." It's because I wanted to get home. Yes. I wanted to be with my family, yes, and exactly. that was a big, big, big change for me. Wonderful, Alex. Listen, before we get into the. the what we're here today to discuss, I'd just like to thank you right away for sharing that little bit about your own personal That's life with us. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. Well, I would like to say it's the same with the adoption and so on. You know, sometimes yeah. there's somebody listening, there might be some 40-year-old guy or woman listening, thinking it'll never... It can happen at the, in the most unexpected circumstances, at the most unexpected moment. Just be ready for it. Always be ready for it. Wise words. Wise words, yes. If that's all you take from this, take that. <laughs> very good. <laughs> Alex, we're sitting here today in a beautiful Starmont Hotel, which brings me nicely along to my next subject. Can the current impasse at Starmont be fixed? And what needs to happen to achieve this? And will the recent events in Lyra McKee's death help really push things along, do you believe? That's three questions now it <laughs> rolled into one. It in, it, well, I voted... For the for the Good Friday Agreement, I I, I, I supported it. I I went to some difficult places to put the case for it. Um, to say to people, look, this is this is very difficult for unionism for all sorts of reasons. In the same way, I think it was also difficult for nationalism and republicanism. Um, but it was a window of opportunity. It was a moment that hadn't existed in my lifetime. I mean, I, I, I the troubles I've gone and that started when I was about 13 years old. Uh-huh. Uh, so they'd moved on. That would have been 1969. We'd moved on 30 years. Yeah. Um, and there was this sense I had never been aware. And I'd, I'd grown from a teenage boy right the way through to a you know a, a working adult, you know, in his um, mid, mid mid 30s. And there was this sense of um, this moment may not come again. Yeah. This moment. This window of opportunity, you know, it may never open again. Have we anything to lose by trying? Have we anything to lose by saying what happened? Not only if we get these people into a room together from all sides, but if we manage to get a deal, if we manage to get everyone around a government table, 
could we surprise ourselves? And I suppose that's what it was about for me. It was could we surprise? I, if you you know my writing, I am I am a natural pessimist. I describe myself as a happy pessimist because I'm rarely surprised. I expect the worst. I prepare for the worst. Yeah. If it happens, I go well. I thought so. If it doesn't and something good happens, I'm delighted. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that's why I backed it. What has concerned me since then, um, and I think this may be from about 2002, 2003 onwards, is that rather than bringing us closer together, it was oddly enough pushing us further apart because it was almost like cementing positions that um, in power sharing is where you make compromises because it's the morally right thing to do and it's for the collective good. My fear was what was happening in the Good Friday Agreement, that it wasn't power sharing. What we were in fact doing, it was almost what I've described as Newtonian politics. To each action there's an equal and opposite reaction. So if they get something, we must get something. We may not need it, they may not need it, but we have to counterbalance everything we do. Just on that point, back when the institutions were first put in place, you being an ex-UUP Director of Communications, I mean? That was much later, but much I, later. I, I was just working for the party at that point. You were working for the party. Yeah. But did it seem to be more hand-in-hand cooperation back when Seamus Malone and David Trimble were in power, as opposed to, say, modern day, where it is Arlene and Michelle? I, 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 I think... Um, Going back to what I just said, I think yes, because I think at that stage we were still at the see where this goes. The honeymoon stage? Yes, it, it, it could be difficult, but let's see where it goes. Um, um, but I think, as I say, it, it moved from that, partly because I think it's worth, if you look at the electoral point of view and from the unionist perspective, mm-hmm. um, my first fear for the Assembly, it was only a little fear, but it was I, I, I wrote about it at the time, was that when you analysed the election results of the first assembly, mm-hmm. it was not a good result for pro-agreement unionism, mm-hmm. because David Trimble, the Ulster Unionists had 28 MLAs, three or four of whom were at best very lukewarm yeah. about the agreement, but, but they'd been basically elected as anti-agreement unionists. Yeah. The party fielded anti-agreement unionists, yeah. which made it confusing for some people, but they ended up with 28 MLAs. The anti-agreement, official anti-agreement unionism, which is the DUP, Bob McCartney's uh, United Kingdom Unionist Party, yeah. and three independents who called themselves, I think they became the Northern Ireland Assembly Party or something like yeah. that. So it was 28 versus 28. Um, Trimble needed the two PUP mm-hmm. to get him to get his 30. That, yeah. made, that made it difficult for him because it's very difficult of a moral high ground when you're dependent on a party which is linked to a, to a, a paramilitary organisation which was still regarded as armed and active, as many unionists saw the, the, the IRA at that yeah, stage. Certainly. But also said against that was because Trimble had these three or four people who were ambiguous, mm-hmm. in real terms there was not a pro-agreement unionist majority in the Assembly, which made it enormously difficult for Trimble to get anything through, made it enormously difficult for him to take risks. And and I can understand why, although I think they could have done a lot more to help him. I think there was a Sinn Féin feeling that, how can we help Trimble, even if we wanted to? Mm -hmm. How can we help him? Because... A, there's no unionist majority, it's a pro-agreement uh, unionist majority in the, in the Assembly. But also, you know, c- c- can he even deliver? With the amount of attacks he was coming under on an almost monthly basis, the internal civil war in the Ulster, could he even deliver? Mm-hmm. Um, it became clear to both, that, both the British and Irish governments that they couldn't... Uh, 
the SDLP, whatever the feelings between the parties were, and I think they were genuine, and I think they were respectful, I think they were mutual, I think they did try and help each other, yeah. it became clear that if the deal was to be sealed, if, 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 if there was some sort of um, coherence, it was going to come from Sinn Féin and the DUP. But my problem with their deal was that it didn't build on genuine power sharing. It built on, the, on this Newtonian principle. As you said, one for them, one for one us. For, and we ended up with all sorts of issues that I think were conflated, never resolved. It was always a sticking plaster solution. It was a kick it down the road solution. And it became almost like every six months we had another crisis, a standoff, another meeting, another where are we going. And in essence, we haven't moved from that. We are still, this, this impasse we have today is exactly the same tell, impasse. Tell me this, Alex, and I appreciate you're a unionist, and that's great. Was Sinn Féin and Martin McGuinness right to bring the Assembly back when they did? Given the reasons why, what they stated for bringing it back? Oh, that, that, that's difficult because I think I think they weren't right on, on, on that issue. I think there was a way around. Oh, but there was a series of issues. There said. were a series of issues. What I used to say um, that um, my own sense, having worked up there and known quite a few people, that the relationship between the DUP and Sinn Féin, forget about the relationship between Ian and Martin and between Peter and Martin, both of which were actually businesslike and friendly. It seemed to be. Yes, yeah, it seemed to be. Um, but there was a sense that, um, and I, I felt it, that at, at deeper down, come down below the leadership level, come down away from the special spa, other spads and things like that, there was no love there. There, yeah. there was barely any respect or civility mm-hmm. there. And I mean, and I was writing this in 2007, 2008, and I remember actually saying, I, it was on, I think it was um, what was still hearts and minds, I think, rather than the oh, view. Yes. But I remember saying about the toxicity, mm-hmm. and, and Martin actually sent me, DM'd me, and, 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 and then actually tweeted. And I think it's somewhere I may have still had that saved somewhere. Then he said this, this was an unfair representation of the relationship between the DUP and Sinn Féin. Uh-huh. And yet when he resigned, you know, in January 2017, yeah. that resignation letter, that resignation letter was a, a summing up of what some of us had been saying for years. Yeah. And if, if one thing really angers me about Sinn Féin, a number of things do, uh-huh. but if one thing really angers me about Sinn Féin, I think they should have dealt with some of these issues. They signed a programme for government, they signed deals with the DUP on three occasions. I think if they were, you know, and Martin said, you know, and I, he said, look, we, we, I stretched, I did this, I did that. There comes a point when, in, if you're canny enough in politics, you go, no, we can't keep on stretching. We have to say, no, we are not going to sign this until we sort this out. Maybe it would have collapsed, maybe yeah. it would have crashed the whole uh-huh. thing, but at least there would have been some sort of integrity in the system. We had two sides who were almost lying to each other you know, and lying to their, oh this this is business we're making progress and deep down I'm not sure they were so when the whole thing crashed, I think it, I'm not sure the RHI, it was the most extraordinary thing in terms of crashing it because I thought it would be something else. But, but I think you're right was that underbelly of I don't know what the word is um, was that underbelly of the lack of respect for each other going on anyway and the RHI was just simply the straw that it broke the camel's yeah. back but I think it, yeah I, I agree with the point I think um, it wasn't just the, 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 the party leadership I think could have come to a deal I think the party leader but what I sense of I, certainly some people in Sinn Féin have, have, have said similar things to me it, this was if it became a revolution to topple it was a grassroots revolution 
because it was clear that the, the core support on both parties yeah. was, and I know Sinn Féin always say, Alex, you're always saying it's always equal and so on, but I know, I know that the core on both sides had reached the point at which they said, we don't want to be in power with each other, we don't want to share power. I mean, one very, one very prominent Sinn Féin said to me, I do not, I didn't come this far, Alex, to share power with someone like that. And I had heard the same thing from the people in, in the DUP. We didn't, we didn't come this far to share power with people. And you think, well, what did you think you were signing up to? What, what do you think this was about? And that's my If they, I think, if you do nothing but do a sticky, you know, plaster, sticking mm-hmm. plaster approach to things, nothing will ever, ever, the wounds just fester under the wrappings. And I think they should have, and, and I've written about it, they should have on a number of earlier occasions said, no, let, let's take a bigger review. And Ireland said quite recently about, you know, running something in parallel. Uh-huh. They should have been doing that, you know, basically from day one. They should have had almost like a subcommittee just to them, which has no function other than to look at the big outstanding issues and then when they came up say well actually we've done some research we've talked to academics we've talked to experts here's a report can you guys read it see what you can take from this we never did that we never did that um, Colm and Mike tried to do in their opposition um, get together but that didn't really work they they have checks and balances well it wasn't wasn't that it didn't really work they didn't get time when that was set up in 20 what May June 2016 and six months later (laughs) well six months later there was crisis and seven months later it was collapsed so I mean well I Mike and, and Colm, I think, had had good ideas there, and I think people like um, um, John McAllister and there were other thinkers, people thinking in those parties, and I was very supportive of a formal, funded, official opposition, but in, in no harm to them. They never got the chance, and they never got the chance to really prepare, prepare people, which is why when Mike made the suggestion, which makes sense in one way, that if you're saying to people, you know, we're working with um, the SDLP in opposition, we think that they are the, the, the DUP and Sinn Féin, it's a false axis, it's a pretend axis. If you're saying, we want to be the opposite, that we want, if you think they're not working, if you think they're insincere, then here's here's something else to vote for. And it's a manifesto to put to the to put, yeah. yeah, so in, in one sense it makes sense mm-hmm. to say, in that case, if you want a, an SDLP, UUP alternative to the DUP and Sinn Féin, then you have to vote for both sides of that. Yeah. But it wasn't, and again, I'm not going to condemn Mike too much of this, because it would be unfair, because they, they, they didn't have the time. No, they didn't. No. But that's the problem. Out of the blue, when the, this, the, the vote column you get, Mike, out of the blue, I, I, Mike saying I would maybe consider voting for the SDLP in exactly the same way that the DUP hadn't prepared their people for the, the, the deal last February. Yeah. Mike and Colm hadn't really had the chance to prepare their people for saying, look, if you're serious about something different, you have to vote. And actually, it, it, bring it forward to now to the to people in, uh, in reaction to Leary McKee's death yeah. who are saying there has to be something better there has to be something different there isn't anything for them to vote for Just that's the problem we, we get on to the untimely unfortunate death of Lyra um, you mentioned the deal it was a deal it wasn't a deal last February given your unique insight Alex do you believe or what have you learned was there a deal there you know can you can, there seems to be if you're listening to Sinn Féin National said there was a deal the DUP couldn't sell it to, I don't know, the Orange Order, the UDA, whoever. But was there a deal? Was there not a deal, in your opinion? It's quite clear. It's quite clear that Sinn Féin thought they had a deal. It's quite clear, if you look at the paper trail from Eamon Malley and Barney Rowan, that there was some a, what looked like a fairly substantial deal in place. I remember when the story broke on the Thursday night that... Um, 
the Taoiseach and the Prime Minister were coming on the Monday to sign. I was alive in the commentator's corner on The View that night. And Mark Ruthers was saying, well, Alex, this looks like a big um, step forward because I'd been very pessimistic about a deal. And I said then, and I, I repeated it in an article in Monday's newsletter when the, the Prime Minister and the Taoiseach were coming, saying, I would be enormously surprised if this gets through because I am hearing nothing nothing from the DUP not not the Orange Order not the UD. I'm hearing nothing from DUP MLAs DUP members and don't forget many people that used to be in, in, in the UUP that I knew as friends and so had defected to the DUP yes. I had a lot of contact yes no one was saying and I said then I really I will be genuinely surprised if this comes down to a deal now that's not I'm just trying to clarify that somewhere along the line I think Sinn Féin were given the very clear impression that a deal had been done. Now maybe this is uh, it was a new, different negotiators. If Robinson had been there, if Paisley, well, I say if Paisley had been there, it would have been Robinson anyway. Robinson would never have allowed that impression. He would have said something like, "Look, I I think I can sell this, but you're going to have to give me time to sell it." Mm-hmm. There was not enough time. There was not because I I've been saying weeks before, because people say to me, "Why did you keep saying there wasn't going to be a deal?" I don't have this. I'm not this hugely influential person can stop things, but I talk. And no one in the DUP, outside of maybe a dozen or so leaders and spad, not one single person was saying to me, Alex, we are ready for an Irish language. They were not and, saying and, that. And, and maybe Sinn Féin, and this is only me, yes, and of course, thought that it was a deal because from all quarters, Sinn Féin seemed to not get as much in the deal that wasn't the deal that they originally set out to get, possibly as well. Is that uh, No, no I, think, I think it was Newton Emerson. <laughs> Apologies to Newton if it wasn't Newton, but certainly I think it was them. Certainly our columns of some sort who said that, you know, if you looked at it closely and, and, and went into the nitty-gritty of this detail, um, the DUP had actually got a better deal. That seemed it, to be it, the it, consensus. There was, no, yeah. there was no reform of the petition of concern. Yeah. There'd been no commitment on same-sex, same-sex marriage, marriage or anything like that. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe... It, it's Something happened within a 24-hour period. I, I don't know. I know that it, it's become popular to say, oh, it was the Orange and the UDA had stopped it. it whatever influence they had, it wasn't that. It was stopped from grassroots who believed that. And let me tell you, it's simple. I've been in this game a long, long enough. When... When political representatives from the DUP phone someone like me and go, Alex, what's going on? I say about what? And they say, you know what? And I say, you haven't been. And, they go, and they're going, well, we hear things. We probably know less than you know. Or no, yeah, we, we know less than you know. And it's Unbelievable. No, it's not unbelievable because it's the one thing because the DUP, whatever you may think about them, and I'm looking about them from they are brilliant strategists. They, you, you know, I know there'll be some people listening to going, "What? Don't be talking nonsense, Alex." They are. They they are very good at what they do. As are Sinn Féin in terms of, they never move without everything. You know, they'll I think. think a, I think people that switched on to politics would accept that. that, that yeah. So they, when they move, they move together. I just sensed in that 24-hour period from that Thursday when it was announced through that weekend. I remember people asking me over and over again, you know, in interviews, and I kept saying, unless I'm missing something here, I am not seeing, and again, it was nothing to do with outside, it's that I kept saying, I am hearing nothing from inside the DUP, below that leadership level, of people telling me, we're signed up for this, we've been briefed about it, I heard nothing, and that's why I kept saying all the way through, I do not see this deal happening. Now, as I say, Sinn Féin clearly, I don't think they lied. I I think they clearly had it in their head 
that a deal would be done. And interesting, if you come forward a year later, I think it was Peter Robinson when he was making his inaugural speech as Professor of Peace Studies at Queen's or something like that. His, he, a couple of paragraphs he was saying about the responsibility of a leader, he said, if it's a deal, you take ownership of that deal, you sell that deal, you promote that deal, it's your deal, it becomes... And Robinson had to do that himself in a number of occasions. Yeah. It was Robinson more than anyone else who basically persuaded the DUP to yeah. accept the deal. Because that's remarkable for the DUP who had talked about, you know, quarantine for Sinn Féin, who had talked about the only cabinet they should be in, have brass handles. For that party, between 2003 and 2007, to get that deal, mm. that was a brilliant piece of... But that was Robinson's doing. He yeah. knew who to talk to, he knew how to win them over, he knew what needed to be said, he knew to say, that's our... I just got the impression when they left that room, when the DUP left that room, I have no idea who they talked to. I genuinely don't know, but certainly the, between then, Robinson would have had them in a the room that evening. Yeah. He would have said, right, sorry, this story's been leaked, it's been bounced, we're not going to be bounced into this. He would have said to Sinn Féin, look, you tell them we're not meeting I, any of these people, I need to get this signed up, I need time to deal with this. Well, I know one sure thing, I'm going to hold on to your phone number for all the breaking <laughs> news in the future. Just skipping forward now, Alex, to um, the current um, call for negotiations. What can be done different this time around to kickstart them, if anything? In, in terms of the talks process, yes. I think they need ruthless honesty. I think they need to accept that whatever they come out with this time, if, if, if they can come out with something. Because, look, people say, oh, all Ireland needs to do is agree to an Irish Language Act, and in exchange for that, Sinn Féin give them something reciprocal. That is not going to solve it because the bigger problem, they need to understand what, what do you mean by power sharing? When you say to, uh, when these two parties sit down and talk about power sharing, what exactly do they mean? Are they going to continue with this? We get this, you get that, and that's it. It doesn't matter, you know, you process the. Are they going to start thinking about what, and it's a cliche to say this thing about the collective good, because I, I, I'm always reminded of someone who said to me two or three years ago, and I was talking about the health service in Northern Ireland. And it was a simple line, he just said, Alex, I won't use the exact word he used, he said, cancer doesn't give a flying f whether you're Catholic, Protestant, it doesn't. We need good hospitals. It doesn't matter well, what your background yeah. is. When you walk into that hospital, you're not saying, could I see a unionist doctor, please? Could I see a, a pro border poll gynecologist? You're not doing any of that. When your kid's going to school, you're not saying, oh, we're Protestants, so we're not bright, and they can't, they are. It doesn't work like that. So basically, whatever they may think about the, the constitutional thing, it can't be changed without a border poll. That'll come at some point, I suspect. But in the meantime, if you two are signing up to govern Northern Ireland together, and for God's sake, that's what you do. What worries me... Govern being the word. Govern, that's what you do. It's basically, it's, you know, you sign up to a programme for government, you, you work out what's available, what's not available, what's affordable, what's not affordable, what a problem is, what can be tackled. You don't go mad and think we're going to tackle every single problem. My view has always been you take two or three things each time, you deal with it, you settle it. It might take, it might take the life term of one assembly to deal with three issues yeah. of hospital, whatever it is. Yeah. But you come to the end of it, they've been dealt with. Yeah. 
you'd say to your people we've dealt with that would now like to deal with that those people oh, actually okay let's see Let, give we'll, us a mandate we'll give you the forward. go but if you come to them constantly and say oh we're at another standstill they've let us down no you let us down do you know something one Maybe. thing I found I spent a lot of time at panels I spent a lot of time being invited to conferences and briefings and so on and even though during this whole Brexit thing the yeah. n- even people Which who are about to get on yes <laughs> but even people who were remain to leave have now got to say saying, Alex I don't care anymore I just want certainty if we're leaving, I want to know the date. If we're if we're staying, I want to know. But this thing of would nobody's any idea, and I think that that applies to government as well. People want certainty, whether you're working in a hospital or a patient in a hospital, whether you're a teacher, whatever it is you want, you want certain. And yes, Sinn Féin and the SDLP will be nationalists forever. It's their entitlement to that aspiration. I don't object. I genuinely don't object to that. Unionists, as I am, will remain unionists. Yeah. But. You know, that's, if you like, that's the psychological part of us. That's the emotional side of us. When you're in government, your job is not to forget about those, but they're not the priority. Correct. The priority is to govern so that everyone, even they said, well, I'd still vote for United Ireland tomorrow, but actually I got bloody good service in the hospital. My kids have a good school. The road doesn't have as many potholes in it and so on. Yeah. And, you know, whatever. Things I, I can, to yes, everyday We're life. actually, Northern Ireland seems better and looks better. That's... That's what most people want. And yes, it won't. You bring, if there's a border poll, even people who are delighted and nationalists when they say, this is working really well, most of them will still go, well, you know, it's been good. But I, you know, if you ask me, do I want a United Ireland? I'd prefer that. But in the meantime, until we get to that question, you govern people as though this is the only place that matters in the world. Because for people who are paying their taxes and their rates and so on, that's all that matters I to think them. after listening to you here for, what is it, 40 minutes so far? You want to go home, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 I'm, I'm just thinking we need you um, involved in these negotiations, I think, because you speak a lot of sense. Well, I, I, I tend to just say what I think and, you know... My life, I've always found, is, you know, you sit down in any conversation with anybody, there, there, there are two or three things you need solved, you know, and you might, don't take 20, take the two or three and walk out. I'd rather they walked out of a deal with one solid thing and say, we'll build on this, than to walk out and say, we've agreed in these two and there's another 27 we're not quite sure about, and it'll be one of those 27 that brings the whole thing down again. Alex, well, okay. Um... I have got about 19 questions for you here, and I'm on question number four. And we're 40, <laughs> That's me, I, I talk, I'm we're sorry. We're 40 minutes in, so um, I don't know what I'm going to have to do here. I'll do the sequel. <laughs> a sequel, yeah, that's a good idea. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Alex, but I believe you're on record as voting for, for Brexit. I voted yes. I voted to leave. Yes. Given subsequent events, are you now reconsidering this, possibly? Well... Well, I voted. I, I, I voted um, against um, in, in the 1975 referendum. Uh-huh. I voted to leave the uh, what was then the common market, common. EEC, whatever it was. Yeah. And I, I had solid reasons. I, I won't. I don't need to repeat or rehearse yeah. them. Okay. I, um, it was, but it was nothing to do with. I, I'm not a little Englander. Yeah. I'm, I'm not an insular little, you know, fly the flag sort of thing. None of that. None of that bothers me or interests me. I, I voted on, on, on political for political reasons. I voted because I didn't like where the, what the European Union had become, yeah. and I had great concerns about where it was going. Um, what I didn't anticipate, and I was honest, anyone who, who followed the, the debate will know that in, in columns and pieces I wrote, I, I said it exactly why I was leaving and why I wanted to leave. What I didn't anticipate was just how monumentally useless 
the House of Commons would be in dealing with this. You know, even people can say, you know, oh well, it, you know, this is a, it, it's, it's a recommendatory um, referendum, and you know, and Cameron was stupid to say, I'll, I'll implement it because it's very difficult in those circumstances. But I expected, as, it, as the House of Commons, in, as it has in other moments in my lifetime, I expected it to rise to the occasion. And even though some MPs didn't like what it was, to say, well, you know, let us make the best of this. Let us work out. You know, I was never a pre- uh, you know Brexit purist. I wrote right from the beginning that uh, Northern Ireland was not unique but Northern Ireland could be problematic and mm-hmm. we had to make sure that I certainly get that put right yes but as soon but as soon as the, as soon as it became clear that they um, that it was uh, um, a leave vote Martin Martin McGuinness and Arlene Foster wrote a joint letter to Theresa May which basically said look we recognise Northern Ireland is different we, we want to have a collective approach to this and May seemed to accept that even to the extent that well if you want to talk to Barnier yourself do you want to talk to Varadkar yourself that's up to you yeah. you know we will so and I just assumed that that would continue. I've no idea how we ended up so messy. Not just the DUP, you know, at this end, who, who, who should have, irrespective of their own confidence and supply deal with the, the the government, they should have said, look, nothing has changed since we wrote that letter in, in August 2016. No, that is still a problem. Yeah. And maybe if they'd taken that approach, they wouldn't have the backstop issue to deal with. They would have found some other way built on trust and common sense. So if you're asking me, do do I regret? I regret the mess we are now in. But if you're saying to me, if there were a second referendum, would you vote leave again? I can't put my hand on my heart and honestly tell you I wouldn't, because the reasons I, I, I wanted to leave haven't changed. Yeah. Do you support the backstop and special status, given how important it is to the end of Ireland to maintain an open border? Uh, I, 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 uh, as I said to you there, I have always supported and I've always acknowledged and accepted the fact that Northern Ireland would have to be treated differently. I've always acknowledged and accepted the fact that it would be possible for the what will what would have then been the <laughs> the executive, um, but for the British government, the Irish government, in Brussels to work out an arrangement which would have been mutually satisfactory, and probably would have included the entire United Kingdom. We could have done that. We are, we are clever enough to do yeah. things like that. But this mad mixture of the ERG, the DUP suddenly deciding to play the Uber Unionist card when they got into into bed with the Tories and so on. That's where the problems came from. But yeah, if you're saying, to, uh, I wouldn't have called it a backstop. But the, I can understand why the, why the DUP got extremely annoyed because they didn't ask for this. This was not negotiated. They were suddenly told, this is, and the Irish government themselves have, have, have admitted, Tony Conway and, and his book and a number of other academics who followed this closely, have admitted that the Irish were genuinely surprised that Theresa May had done this. And I think at that moment, what the DUP should have done at that moment was go, can we trust this woman? Does she know what she's doing? And then so maybe go with that uh, tail between their legs and say to the other parties, look, we, we have a problem, we weren't expecting this, we need to find a way that suits us all together. They didn't do that. But it, it goes back to it's just been enormously badly handled. And I'm not, I own my vote. I want to say that because it's important. I own my vote to leave. 99.9% in the second referendum, I would vote leave again. I do not take ownership of the huge cock-up made by Labour, the Conservatives, yes. and that sort of thing. Because people say, oh, you're trying to... I'm not backing away. I have no regret about my vote, but I am appalled by how badly it has been handled. I think there's a band starting up here. Alex, who might um, be asked for a dance shortly, but um, we'll we'll struggle on anyway. Um, Correct me again here, Alex, if I've got this wrong, but I believe you previously stated that in the event of a yes vote in a border poll that you would consider leaving. You have since rethought that, have you? 
Yes, I, the the piece, I think it was about five years ago. I, I, I did, it came up and I'd said yes. And part of that concern was, um, I think I was looking at it too closely from a Sinn Féin view. I'm sorry, guys, I'm not attacking you in this. I'm simply saying, I was, because they will tell you, I have been to a number of... Sinn Féin, you're referring to that? Yes, I've I've been to a number of um, Sinn Féin events over the past couple of years. I've spoken at the United Ireland Projects. I've made the case as a unionist. Uh, They have been, sometimes the audience have been, looked at me with what she just said, but they've treated me with respect. They've heard me with respect. I come away, no one has ever said, oh, you you changed your unionism are you mellowed there Alex um, I think the only question I would ask you was you and Arlen going to buy a house together because he I'm just saying, yes, 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 <laughs> no um, but I, 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 yes because my mistake when I wrote the first article was in thinking that a United Ireland would come in the shape that Sinn Féin wanted it and again, that's their aspiration there perfectly but it, it hit me it wasn't it I was just talking to somebody who said Alex the Irish government will have to play a part in this. The Irish people will have to play a part. So will the citizens. They, yes, the citizens. So they, if, Ireland, if Irish unity comes, it's going to be much bigger and much broader than the, the, the narrow image you think it has. And, and when I realised that, I wrote the piece and said, but you know, I've thought about this. And I, I always say this to people, I'm willing to talk. If I've made a mistake, I will own up to that mistake. I'm willing to listen. I am not so hard-boiled that I say, no, this is my view. I'm not Martin. It wasn't Martin. Here I stand. I can do no other. I'm willing to listen to other arguments. And my position now is that in the event of there being a United Ireland, I will be, I will be part of that debate. I'm already part of that debate. I will make the case. If, if, we, if, if unionism finds itself on the losing side, which odd enough, I don't think it will in the near future, but if if it does, so many people, and I'm saying this not to blow my own trumpet, but so many people from both sides uh, in, 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 in unionism and, and republicanism in Northern Ireland, including some people on the Irish side, have said to me, Alex, we need people like you to stay, because if unionism is to be protected and the values that matter to you are being protected, we need voices like you. So, yeah, I'm saying I will take part in the debate, and I think if that debate comes out satisfactorily, yeah, I'll be staying. And I will not force my kids or, or my carry well, to wander. 48 minutes into this conversation, that's coming across loud and clear how reasonable um, that you are, definitely. I'm, I'm, I think I've always been... Re- I have views which matter to me. I am an unashamed, unapologetic unionist. I know unionism has got things wrong, but I am a unionist, and I will continue to make the case for unionism. But, I, as I keep saying, I, do, I don't want my unionism and what I believe to frighten anyone else. And it, and it saddens me. It actually does, from an emotional point of view, and I'm not particularly emotional, as I told you earlier, but it does sadden me that the values I hold dear and that the values... Which, which I think underpin a fairly good democratic system, have occasionally been allowed to be severely tarnished. And I, 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 so if, if all I can do in my own little way is to simply say there is a form of unionism which is, I think, more tolerant and more willing to be open than some voices I've heard, then yeah, if I'm one of those voices on that side, I will take that. Sticking with the theme of a border poll, just for a few more minutes, Alex, if you don't mind, if a border poll was to pass, what sort of things would you want to see in a new shared Ireland that would give you comfort in terms of identity and provisions and things like that? That well, do you know that we're not going to be able to discuss that no, in much detail. I'm simply big, big question. That's going to be enormously difficult because um, you cannot create a United Ireland in which you have. Uh, 
sort of an almost lagger for 800,000 people who still say we're British. We, yeah. we saw the, the difficulties that happened um, uh, with the creation of Northern Ireland. That, 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 that nationalist aspiration was never lost. You cannot build the United Ireland on the basis that they're upwards of a million unionists, because they will, they will still grow, quite, not in the same speed, obviously, as, as, as a non-unionist vote. But it's a way of... Because you can never say, no matter what happened in Northern Ireland, no matter what happens in a border poll, if, if, if nationalists lose it, the nationalist aspiration never left. That, that, that flickering torch of wanting to be a nation once again was always there. The minute there is a united Ireland, you are saying goodbye to unionism in the form that I've known it. Because there will not be a border poll down the line. There will not be an open door. You'll not be able to say, this no speech, oh Alex, you can be Irish and British. No, you can't. You can be Irish and British in Northern Ireland under the Good Friday Agreement because you have the aspiration to be fully Irish. So you will never lose. Whether whether you're in Northern Ireland, you don't lose your Irish identity. Whether you're in the United Ireland, you don't lose your Irish identity. I don't see, and this is the big problem, I don't know, it's going to take huge debate. I don't know if it's possible to accommodate what I understand as unionism in the United Ireland, but that raises, well that raises a challenge for those who want to help and accommodate, it also raises the challenge for people like me, you know, what we are going to have to face some reality which will be uncomfortable and difficult realities and that's where the debate has to be, can, just, can, can you marry those two? Just on that point, who is selling the union to nationalists, Alex, and those who may consider I'm not sure anyone is, and again, that, that, is, Give it a crack. <laughs> that is that that is something that worries me because I think they, they one of the problems for unionism. If, if you're an Irish nationalist, it's simple, you know. And I don't mean in a derogatory sense. You just want you want your nation once again. You want a United Ireland. I uh, even though it's, I think that's slightly unfair, purely because you know we all, as you alluded to earlier. We all need health care, we all need roads, we mm -hmm. all need infrastructure, we all need money. But I, I take your general point, yes. Yes, my general point is, it, yes, it, it's that sense of, you know, even living in the United Kingdom, whatever we're doing, we, those jobs, infrastructure, economy, yeah. all, all of that matters. And there will be people, you know, who will, who will some people will put the, the emotional side before any other side and, uh, and vice versa. Um, but in terms of, of selling the union, unionists themselves, have not, it's not about selling the union to nationalism. I think sometimes one of the great drawbacks in unionism, if we've, we've been actually bloody hopeless at selling it to ourselves. We've been, you know, we, we unionism, sadly, as I said, is a very defensive thing. It's Mike, a, Mike Nesbitt once told me that um, unionism doesn't do PR. Well, we don't. We well. never have. We we, <laughs> we 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 never have done PR. We we t I, I think partly that there's a much bigger debate here at some point um, yeah. that unionism. I think um, psychologically, we always feel that everyone's against us because we didn't know unionists. No unionists wanted um, Northern Ireland. If you look back at the history, if you look at Craig Avon and Carson, none of them was arguing for you know, six counties, nine counties. They didn't want that at all because deep down, I think some of them realised that once even that partition, while it may give them this illusion that you've got your own state, they knew that they were they weren't part of Ireland in the way they had been before. But nor were they part of the United Kingdom that they had been before. And there was always this sense, it's almost like a Lundy mentality in unionism, that anyone who dares point out something is somehow undermining 
joining the cause. And um, I would say it, it goes back to the you know the old Monty Python thing about in, in the life of Brian. You know, what have the Romans ever done for us? Well, apart from the viaducts, you know, apart from the public baths, one apart of, from the roads. One of the best films. Yeah, yeah but for unionism, it's we want the same values as the rest of the United Kingdom, except we'd like our own parliament. We want our own rules. We want our own election yeah, system. But, and but, even now, but even we also now, want to cherry pick through certain laws. Well, that's what worries me. Just on a very simple issue. Um, for example, same-sex marriage. Yeah. I do not know. Whatever, whatever the moral difficulty. I can understand people who have moral difficulties with this. Of you cannot say to someone as a unionist, it's legal in England, Scotland, and Wales, but you set foot in Northern Ireland, and it's not. And you cannot say that and continue with the argument. But other than that, we, 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 we equality, <laughs> equality of citizenship is a difficult thing. And I, I know there are decisions, moral decisions made in Parliament that I have been uncomfortable with, but I accept them because it's equality of citizenship. If it applies, you can fight you know, in, in, in Parliament to get something overturned if you want, but you cannot say to people in Northern Ireland, it doesn't matter, you cannot say the words, I am a, I am a unionist. A and, but, yeah, or, well, <laughs> uh, in fairness, this petition of concern debate, I think if, you, if anyone wants to trawl back through the records, they will find that one of the first people to say this petition of concern is going to be a problem problem in the future because it will be used for reasons it was never intended to be used for was me and I'm sorry it just, I just, that, that point I, I, I keep saying over and over again because it matters to me that as a unionist if anyone is made to feel like a second class citizen then we as unionists have failed. We have failed as unionists in Northern Ireland but we've also failed our fellow citizens across the United Kingdom because it used to be when I grew up you know, it wasn't going up in the 50s but in the 50s it was commonplace to look upon Ireland as the south as some sort of small little state which was insignificant I've grown to I'm 63 now to me again sadly it looks as if Northern Ireland is the place apart and when you cannot be a place apart and be a unionist it's too difficult you know, unionism means sometimes having to swallow things you don't like on, on moral and social legislation. And I think, I think sometimes, I think there's an element of unionism which hasn't quite faced that reality yet. Okay, Alex, historical links and culture aside, what would be the benefits of the union outside of the EU for those living in Northern Ireland? The benefits of the union? Well, yeah, you know, but outside... Well, that, that I think is, has, has been become the huge yeah. argument, and I accept that because I think what the European Union seems to have done for some people, maybe in a way that even I hadn't fully recognised, it recognises a multiplicity of identities. Um, personally, I think it would have been easier for even some, let's call them small end nationalists and small unionists, and who are people who are listening to United Ireland debate who weren't listening five years ago. Yeah. It goes back to the point I just made about Northern Ireland looking like a place apart. They're not only un they, while they may be uncomfortable with finding themselves outside the European Union, although I, oddly enough I don't think they ever will be outside the Europe. I, th I think a second referendum is on the way. There's a lot but, of people thinking that. But you look at the alternative. You look at what you're left with, and what many people saw, including some unionists, was a a little, almost like a little Ulster. Democratic Unionist Party representing the unionism and what looks as though it was about to become a little Englander parliament. Mm -hmm. There was nothing there because they, they, the, the debate used to be before, you know, if a border poll would have been between the United Kingdom as it stood, you know, with all the protections within that yeah. and the United Ireland. Yeah. It's become different now it because has. that border poll is 
what does Northern Ireland look like? How do people feel in Northern Ireland? And again, I think that was a, 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 a mistake that the DUP made. They have, and I still don't know if they fully recognise mm. that, you know, in the same way that they keep saying their identity matters to them, and it does, and mm, I accept it as a unionist. Yeah. I think they seem to have completely forgotten that there are people nationalists in particular you know maybe 15 16 18 20 percent of nationalists were happy enough to live in the northern Ireland within the united kingdom which wasn't challenged they are not happy now yeah. because one of the reasons they're not happy is that no, no that the unionism they see is the unionism of the dup and they're not happy with that yeah, unionism that's right. that's because right. i met nicely said to me alex you know i'm not so fast you know i think the united kingdom probably would survive but I don't know. I, I don't know where the DUP is going. I don't know what's going to happen if Boris Johnson becomes prime minister, who genuinely doesn't care about Northern Ireland. So yeah. again, I think you know, in, in that debate, I mean, yeah. look, as, and I keep saying about the Brexit thing, it's a simple. It's become a cliche almost now. The 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 Remain side didn't prepare to lose, and the Leave side didn't prepare to win. Very true. And that's where we still are. And I think the DUP have. And I'm, I'm not going to blame them entirely for this because it's happened across the United Kingdom. Yeah. But they, they, in the same way that Arlene recognised in August 2016 in a letter with Martin McGuinness of the, the Northern Ireland's particular status and how it be dealt with, and Martin was willing to sign that letter and say this on behalf of the executive, I don't think Arlene fully understands the, 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 the real dilemma in terms of identity, not just for small-end nationalists, but also for... A small new unionist who have to say, who will be saying to themselves, "Am I comfortable in what has been left?" And I think that she hasn't, that has not been fully addressed. Okay, Alex, can you foresee a long-term future for the SDLP and UUP? And if so, how can they win back voters, oh which they have clearly lost? We should have done this this interview on Friday morning with <laughs> some idea. I, I I think it's enormously difficult for them. I think, um, and as a former unionist, um, I have great affection and an awful lot of time for the party. Yeah. But um, there was that sense of losing the sense of direction, and partly. I, I don't regret the decision of the party to back the Good Friday Agreement. I think the risk was worth taking. Um, yeah. I think they were eclipsed by the, the DUPs, partly because of our own fault, partly because of a, a civil war uh, in which... And I don't I don't knock Geoffrey and Arley made it quite clear from the start they weren't happy with the agreement. But that, that internal war continued for some time. And the DUP eclipsed us. And since then... We and I said we because it's that form um, of affection. No, it's a form of affection. I have yeah. many, many friends, I've, people I've worked with for years. As I said, we haven't. You hold it there. Yes, we haven't found a role for ourselves since then. And I think it's the same with the SDLP. That you know, with with when it when it went and it it got eclipsed, they still haven't found the role. And there was maybe a chance of someone who who was also one of the first people to talk about the need for what I've always called the formal, official, funded opposition. Um, I'd hoped that they might be able to find that role, maybe working with Alliance or whatever, finding something different to say, you know. I, I suspect we're now in, it's a numbers game territory, and I think that's a, tragedy is the wrong word they're used. Sure. Reality is, it doesn't matter what what will happen, I suspect. I'll make the prediction, I don't know when you're going to play this. Prediction, I don't think the, the SDLP or the UUP will be making anything that looks like recovery on Thursday. I don't think they'll do particularly well in the... Um, in the European Union election, and I think both Sinn Féin and the DUP, and again, I'm not knocking them as someone in former director communications and understand strategy. 
you play the numbers. They will be adding up their numbers. Uh, the Shi, the DUP, hoping that they they push pushed a few percentage between them and overall nationalism, and vice versa. That's what the battle is. And if that's where the main battle is, and most people have accepted it, it's very very hard for other parties, yeah. albeit with the best of intentions, to say, forget the numbers. Let's focus on this. And both, it's interestingly. Even for local government elections, which are about, you know, what is it they used to say? Bogs, dogs, bins and burials. That's, that's their <laughs> yes. responsibilities. You know, both the DUP and Sinn Féin have been talking about border poll and numbers. So that's, 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 where, the real, that's where the battle is. So. Given um, the SDLP's recent relationship with Fianna Fáil, do you think there will ever become a time where the likes of the UUP could um, cozy up till, say... <laughs> not sure the UUP can cozy up to anyone. Um, after I, th- I think the problem with um, when I first heard about the the Fianna Foyle SDLP deal, it have to say it made sense to me. There was a, it was a counterbalance to the what was happening in terms of the Unity Project, which was growing on the Unity debate, which was growing. So it made sense the the SDLP needed a counter to Sinn Féin's All Ireland agenda. The yeah. Fianna Foyle, if there was going to be a major debate, they needed to say we've a foothold in Northern Ireland. All of that made sense. What I can't understand, and having written and said that it made sense to me, I can't understand how they made such a complete bollocks of it. Because <laughs> basically, it's it was almost like it's you know, a, it's an ongoing work of yes, yes. Apparently, instead of being you know in the same bed together, so they got two beds in different houses and pretending <laughs> and pretending it's a relationship. But it made it become like you know the, the what did the paraphrase you know Oscar Wilde? It's become like the the political arrangement that dare not speak its name. Yeah. You know, and I think that's that's been a huge problem. I think they should have grasped but with a bit more boldness but um, so I, I, I think that project will end badly uh, for all the wrong reasons but no if, if at no stage is it likely that any union what happens look look if there's a border poll that results in the United Ireland anything is then possible because it, it's possible that the but most unionists who were unionists who voted to you know for to stay in the United Kingdom they're not going to be able to pack up and leave yeah. you know their 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 lands here their business here their life's here whatever yeah. it is all that here yeah. they'll have to find a role for themselves and yeah you know maybe that role will be in, in 20 30 40 years down the line after that they will have folded into yeah. you know different or they might just keep themselves almost like an Ulster a big Ulster unionist but let's face I remember saying to one TD in the middle of a debate I said, you know, he was talking about the, the, the advantages of the United Ireland. I said, bear in mind that if, if there is a United Ireland and the Unionists decide for maybe 30, 40 years to just work as the as the, the United Ulster Party or something like that, you can have a Unionist bloc in every single government for the next 40 years because you won't be able to form one without them. That's you know, because they yeah. will be, there might be 40 of them, there might be 35. That's bigger than, you know. And yeah. he sort of looked at me and said, oh, I hadn't thought about that, Alex. And that's the thing, always look at the un- unexpected consequences. But yeah, in, in, that, in, that, eventual, in that eventuality of... Did I knock you off? Then that eventuality of, of, of a border poll leading to United Ireland, which I think is not going to happen anytime soon, it's unionists who stay, which I think will be the vast majority, will have to find a role for themselves. Yeah. And they will. It's the nature of people to find a role for themselves. Okay, we're skipping through these questions directly. Alex, nearly there. Just a, one or two very quick ones for you. Alex, there's groups like Ireland's Future are emerging. For example, the event in the Waterfront Hall uh, earlier this year, uh, beyond Brexit, and their upcoming event in Uri on Thursday the 9th of May. They seem to be detoxifying the discussion, a discussion that was once solely led by Sinn Féin. Do you think it's important? And also, 
Unionism does it need to have the same type of discussion amongst itself and with others? Well, I think yes, unionism does need to have a discussion, and I've thought that for years because even when we stand now, we have the DUP, the UUP, TUV, PUP, a number of fringe groups, and there's no unanimity within unionism other than saying we want to stay in the United Kingdom. I mean, there were unionists like me, for example, and I'm not a minority in this. I think I, I, I speak for, I'm not saying I speak for a majority, but I'm not a lonely voice who have no you know, hang-ups whatsoever with same-sex marriage, who have no hang-ups whatsoever with a woman's right on, on abortion issues and so on. You know, so, but you, you have that conversation across the unionist party and you will find huge differences there. So we need to understand what it actually means to be a unionist. What it means, what are, the, what are the responsibilities of a unionist within the United Kingdom? What are the responsibilities of a citizenship within the United Kingdom? What are we as unionists trying to say to people who are not unionists? How collectively, you know, people may say we've left it too late in the day, but I'll never, I'll never accept that, you know. You, 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 what you present of unionism, what people see of unionism is what they take away. And I like to think when people talk to people like me, you know, I remember one person said to me quite recently, and it wouldn't have been a hardline Republican, I think, I said, you know, Alex, I wish most unionists were like you, if only that they're willing to have conversations, you know, and without saying, oh, you're all with this or you're all that. So I think, yes, unionists need to understand exactly understand exactly who we are and what we want and maybe find a more coherent voice. Um, in terms of um, the unity debate and, and, and new voices emerging, that's, that's a good thing. Uh, in one sense, it won't detoxify the did, debate. Did you attend the Waterfront event? No, I didn't. I, I wasn't invited as it happens. No, <laughs> it, it was an open event. I know, but some, it's some, I'll tell you, I have this strange thing, and it's, maybe it's a vanity thing, and I apologise if, if it does sound like you, it is. You like to be asked? No, it's not even about like to be asked. Sometimes you turn up, you find yourself accidentally becoming part of a story which you never wanted to be, and people coming up and saying, oh, Alex, can we get a photograph of you? Because in terms of cachet within unionism, I'm probably more of a, I'm a better photo opportunity than some other people who might have been there. And, and I didn't I want, that. yes, I did not want to be in that situation. I knew I was going to be writing about it. I monitored during the day. I talked to some people who were there, people who were speaking and people who had been in the audience. So I got a fairly good view it was always coming. The, the consequence, it wouldn't have mattered, I think, even if we hadn't that Brexit. You know, but the, there was always going to come a point as the demographics shifted closer together. Mm -hmm. In my lifetime, and I think when one of the first elections I remember, there was 74, the, the general election, unionism was taking something like 63% of the available vote. Yes, I know there's an, uh, an element of nationalism which wasn't, but it doesn't matter. That's gone down. Yeah. You, know, you look at the figures now, card-carrying unionism, in terms of people who have unionists on their manifesto or union or something like that, they haven't had a comfortable overall majority recently. Mm -hmm. So that debate, you know, that internal nationalist debate was always coming. People saying, well, if we get into the starting gate of a border poll, how do we present it? How do we make our case? And, and I think that's important that um, nationalism is, is actually saying to unionists, guys, face the fact, there may well be a border poll. It's written into an agreement. It could happen. You know, the evidence that the Secretary of State needs just says likely. What, how do you define likely? Is it, in, is it in votes? Is it in election results? Is it you, you lose your majority in the council as well as the Assembly? We're simply saying to you, we are ready. We are having this debate now. It fills me with not dread, but certainly a certain amount of worry that there's still a tendency in unionism to go, oh, it can't happen, it won't happen. You know, all those figures are wrong. You know, they'll pick one random It'll vote. be all right on the It'll night. be all right then. I remember uh, at, at the la in the Assembly election in 2017 writing a piece of the newsletter 
in which all I said was, I think it may not happen this time, but certainly within the next three, four years, unionism could lose its overall majority in the Assembly. They were very close to the last time. And I remember, I remember a couple of very senior unions said, Alex, why you said it can't happen? They lost it two weeks later. Oh, well, they're yeah. sorry. Yeah, they, they lost it at that point. And that, came as, a huge, lost, yeah. that came as a huge yeah. shock. And it, luckily enough, I think... Um, the, the, the Westminster election saved Arlene's bacon, the DUP's bacon, and so on, because it put them in a, a, a much stronger position. When the figures, I'm not saying they're adding up to a bad result for them if there was a border poll, but I'm simply saying I, I'm a nerd when it comes to, I'm a, you didn't say in the introduction, the great passion of my life, apart from politics and apart from Kerry and the children, is Sherlock Holmes. Oh, oh yes. And, and Sherlock Holmes always said, you know, the, the most important, the most instructive thing is the observation of trifles. It's the little things. Mm-hmm. And I always say to people who ask me about things, Alex, why do you reach this conclusion and say, forget the big picture. Look, what are the numbers telling you? What are the figures telling you? What are the terms of, you know, when, when I, I remember writing a piece with someone, it was a jokey piece, um, saying, you know, unionists may be grateful within 10 years for mandatory coalition in the Northern Ireland Assembly, the way that people sort of laughed at it at the time. It's only about when, about two years later, someone said, I was rereading that piece of yours, Alex. I mm-hmm. finally realised what you meant. And I, So in those figures, I'm simply saying in the same way that nationalism collectively seems to me, whether you call it civic nationalism, political nationalism, cross, whatever, it manifests itself, it has started its own internal debate and is, in his saying, I think, the you see that as being healthy? I, th- I, th- I think it's perfectly. I, I, I would be genuinely surprised if, if, if in the circumstances they weren't, where my surprise is that um, even if unionism isn't actually in formal terms reaching out to take part in that debate, I would have expected them to be sitting down looking at the numbers and going, okay, what would happen, theoretically, what would happen if the Secretary of State just got so pissed off with us, she said, right, we're having the border poll. <laughs> it's not the, it's her choice, it's the government, you know, the DUP no longer propping up a government, something like this, you know, would Said so that just go home, do the figures somewhere, and tell me how you are you absolutely certain there would be a convincing majority, even a half respectable majority. And if you don't think there is, then start looking at the possibilities and start talking. That's all we have to do internal. My problem is I'm not sure we're having that internal conversation. And I know there are elements of, oh, but Alex, the minute you start that, you're conceding something might happen. Everything in politics as, should be considered in advance. Used, uh, the house uh, insurance analogy. Absolutely. It'd be better to no, have p- something in place. Peter and I would disagree on a lot of things, oh. but both of us, I think, have this, the same belief. You need strategy. Think ahead. You should always. Like Sinn Fein. Sinn Fein, I remember, uh, uh, I won't name it, but uh, a very well known senior influential figure in Sinn Fein once told me, Alex, you have to be at least 10 years ahead. You know, where we are now, we're already thinking about where we need to be. And everything we will move will be done to get to that point. And I think it was um, Alistair Campbell, you know, when he's talking about the negotiations, said that, you know, that that was, Sinn Féin did, they, they thought like that. And he said, that was also the difference between the DUP and the UUP. The DUP were very good at options and preparing. I think what's happened now, I think even in the past three years since Ireland's taken over, and it's not entirely her fault because so many pressures have come on, yeah. I think the DUP have taken their eye off the long-term ball yeah. where it is, where it the needs big, to big be. Picture. The big picture. I think they need to be having that. Just don't, just, Sammy just goes, oh, you know, it's not going to happen, whatever. Always be prepared for the 
the thing you haven't prepared for. In a word, will you be attending Ireland's future event in Newry on the 9th of May next month? I won't because I will be away with my children. I'm sorry. No, I'm not sorry. <laughs> I, I, I will be away. Look, the, because of the two elections coming out of the blue, even this bank holiday weekend, which I promised to spend with them, I'm spending t- TV and radio studio. They will kill me. They will actually physically kill me if, if, if I'm not there on the 9th. Okay. Do you have any regrets about leaving your post in the UUP as director of communications? Um, regret? Yes, because I, I miss I miss friends I had up there. I, you miss the buzz. It was exciting. But look, um, I'll, I'll, I'll be very personal. Some people know this. Some people. It's, it's worth saying. Um, I hadn't. I'd spent so much time with uh, working with the party, you know. And you were leaving the house half past six in the morning. You were. It was constant. It was non-stop. There was so much going on. That um, Megan, you know, I barely got a chance to see much of her, and we'd had four miscarriages along the way. And I remember saying to her, "Well, it's, it's one of those things, you know." And, and luckily, we were—I'm we, an atheist, but luckily, we were blessed with, with with two more. But I remember saying to the carrier, "Do you know something? If if we get one out safely, my my inclination would be to spend time to to have that fun. Um, I'm I'm in a position where I think I've enough." cachet, I, I can write a bit and talk a bit if I go freelance I'll probably find work and yeah I took a financial hit but you know I've had I just the, the, the sheer joy I've had of taking Lila to and from school almost every day and doing her homework we now have Indy who's 21 months I can be with him for first steps for first ridiculous words, for having banana thrown at me when I'm writing and so on and you know something, you know while part of me does miss that um, that part of in, in party politics, I, I think I have a, I think I've carved out another role for, and I know I annoy some unions with my view, and I probably annoy Sinn Fein and some Republicans with my views, but you know, I think you've set the record state here tonight. Well, <laughs> well, you won't annoy anybody. I don't mind annoying people because uh, people, some of them say, what's the, the the job of a columnist or a commentator? You don't want them going. You want them to go. Even the, 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 that's a fair point and the number yeah. of people who said to me and I, again I take it as, with us with great pride the number of people who said to me I was listening to you last night that was a good point you made about it doesn't matter that what else you may have been talking for 10 minutes if they, all they do is take that one point away and think about it um, and, and I have had people say to me including people at senior figures and parties who said I've read your piece the other day it's you know it got some of us thinking and, and resonated yeah. and that's and as an Ulster Unionist, it would automatically be knocked because, oh, you're a staffer, you're this, you're that. But I think as someone who carved out the role I now have, who's someone who's willing to be critical of all sides yeah. um, and take the stick from all sides, I've like, don't take anything personally, which I don't. I try not, I don't go out of my way to deliberately offend anybody. But I call it as I see it, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, mostly in the middle. And, you know, that's, you know, so I don't miss, I, I, I miss part of Stormont, but I, I'm not missing the politics because I live it and breathe it every day. But I wouldn't, I'm glad I made the right decision. I, I made the decision in the same way that Kerry was a huge boon to my life, the children as well. I, I've been truly blessed. I'm an old dad and I absolutely love it. I wouldn't give that, I would give up the writing, the politics, the television, interviews of people like you, like that. In a mil- if it meant you know if, 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 I, if I had to make that choice between the children and everything else the children and Kerry will always come first and I am actually I, I'm not emotional but by God you know you've said that a couple of times as, as, I, today, you as, an, as an older dad I have been blessed and extraordinarily lucky you're an old dad with a young heart well, yes, as long as yes, I'd like all the rest of me to be young as well but yes, so, as long as the <laughs> heart keeps ticking that. That. Yeah. Alex that's us with uh, nitty gritty stuff. 
um, always finish off by asking a couple of wee quick questions and um, if you've listened to any of our previous co- podcasts you'll know what's coming if you haven't tough luck you're just going to have to think <laughs> in your feet if you could be or sorry if you could invite three people to your dinner party and they can be alive or dead who would they be but more importantly why um, can yeah, I, I, I appreciate I, I threw this one am I allowed you. fictional characters oh, of course sure. okay Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird because I think uh, there is a lot of resonance with Northern Ireland and the deep south in the 60s at the time I think huge integrity under very difficult circumstances and also an older dad um, oh, Sherlock Holmes oh, it had to be Sherlock. obviously because yes. uh, I just think it's a huge influence there. some of his quotes are you know when, when you've eliminated the impossible whatever remains however improbable must be the truth that is That's a lovely. all columnists should have that and the the, the third one I think um, Margaret Thatcher simply oh, oddly enough because there's so many things I want to ask you because I, 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 I had a huge admiration for Thatcher then she sort of I think almost went clinically bonkers towards the end but I just like to talk to someone who whether agree or disagree love love whatever I think there, Margaret would be in a lot of people's lists. Yeah, there are elements in her. She's just one of those people. I met her very briefly once, very, very briefly. And she was, some people just fill a room with her presence. She filled it. And I would, there's so many things I would just like from a historical, particularly about Northern Ireland, so why did you do certain things? Yeah, so yeah, though, if I could have those, I'd be happy with those three. Three very interesting answers, I must say. Right, Alex, finally, one word answers, please. Potatoes, rice or pasta? Um, potatoes. Water or alcohol? Uh, water. Best film? Oh, uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, which has the classic line, when the truth becomes legend, print the legend. Best book? To Kill a Mockingbird. Favourite food? Um, steak, steak and mashed potato. It's the same as Niall O'Donnell. Yeah, Kerry's a vegetarian, but it's the one thing I, I, will, I will fight for till my dying breath. Rugby, GA or... Um, no sports at all. No sports. I do. I don't like sports. I don't watch sport. I have no interest in sport. Okay. This is. Even that's obviously the only time someone said that to you. Yeah, yeah you can't stop me there. This is. I promise you the last question. If you had to pick your favourite spot or beauty spot in Ireland, where would it be in life? Um, the grounds of Stormont. The grounds of Stormont. The grounds of Stormont because it's where I first had the the conversation I needed to have with Kerry. Ah, very and, good. And it's where the the ashes of Conan, who who we lost at seventeen weeks, so we had the we had the body, oh, and we we scattered his ashes on the front lawn of Stormont because I said it's we'd met at Stormont, uh, we'd um, had that conversation at Stormont, and every time I drive up, that I, I and I still go up. I always as I pass it, I go. Hi, little man. Hope all well. Because I remember we scattered the ashes. started to make me emotional. And, and, and Megan was with us, and she would discover that she she ran chasing after him. And it's little things like that. It's maybe not the most beautiful place in the world, but for me, it is. Uh, I, I met Kerry there. We talked there. You know, so many good memories are there. Um, and just one of my one of my children. Because I even though I mean, we we lost four miscarriages. Um, each of those was a living, breathing. We saw the heartbeat of each one in turn. So I, I know what it's like to. That's I know it's like, Alex. I, I know it's like to, to take loss like that and to hold a 17-week-old. Um, and it is a baby. It is. A, it's. It's. It's something that you had prepared to set a table for and you know change nappies for. So um, it, it. It was difficult, but it was that. It was a love that. that that kept us together at that point because it was because at one we had to consider maybe we'd never be able to and the doctor said well you can conceive just if you want to and then suddenly out of the blue there's Lila Liberty happy 
um, wonderful and then a few years after that indie and they just it's just one of those things in life so again I keep saying to people I'm, I'm an atheist I have I, I don't know what will happen to me when it's all over but um, I just I've had great moments in life I've had hugely difficult moments in life but the grounds of Starman I feel I feel at peace that wee story helps put things in perspective well you know and what people sometimes say about the, the, my pessimism and cynicism about all of this I really would actually love to see. I'd love to f- find a time. I don't know if it's possible. Maybe it isn't possible now that we could reach a moment when when no one gives up on their aspirations, but we just govern Northern Ireland. Actually, as I said right at the beginning with the Good Friday Agreement, that we actually just surprise ourselves by our better natures. Because I think most people I meet, within no matter what they've done, you find a bond with them. And on that note, Alex Gale, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you. Thank you very much for giving up your valuable time in this busy run-up to the local elections. On behalf of our listeners, Shared Ireland, and especially myself, um, you've been more than honest and truthful and upfront in this interview, and we really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Alex. Thank you. A pleasure.